In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And that's how the third chapter of Daniel begins. Nebuchadnezzar the Great made an enormous image of gold and set it up on the plain of Dura in Babylon. Now, I'm guessing most, if not all of us, know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. And if you didn't, we just read it with the kids. So, I mean, now, now you have no excuse. Now, on one hand, this story is a deadly serious, and, and it's kind of a terrifying story in which these three young Judahites take a stand for the God of Israel and are very nearly martyred for their faith. The king holds all the cards. He has all the might. He has all the power. He stands before his subjects in all his glory. I mean, he's the one who's conquered the world, after all. There is no one more powerful than the great Nebuchadnezzar. Or so he thinks. And so as the storyteller unfolds the tale... As much as it's deadly serious, he also mocks the grandeur and the greatness of the king of Babylon. Everything about his image of gold, everything about this this great and sort of international or cosmopolitan crowd of dignitaries that gathers, all of the pomp and circumstance of the ceremony, and even his orders about the fiery furnace, The storyteller exaggerates everything to the point of absurdly over-the-top language. Because from the Lord's perspective, that's how all of this sounds. And the storyteller wants us to have a taste of that. So he tells us Nebuchadnezzar made a great image of gold. 60 cubits by 9 cubits. I know that's utterly meaningless to us. But as I told the kids, that's about 10 stories tall, 10-story building. I used to work in a 10-story building when I lived in Portland. That's a tall building. A 10-story building, but it's only 9 feet wide at the base. I mean, think about that. 10 stories by 9 feet. Doesn't work, does it? It's an impossible image. And... That's what I'm talking about. I mean, it, it, it's not to deny the historicity of the event. Some people use details like this to say, ah, it never happened. Someone just made it up. I think Nebuchadnezzar probably did make a great image of gold. The real life one was surely grand in scale and appearance. It was Nebuchadnezzar after all, and he was the greatest king the world had known in that day. But the storyteller's point here, and it runs all through the story, the point is to portray everything to do with the king's supposed greatness as excessive to the point of absurdity. Not so much because Nebuchadnezzar was wrong to make an image commemorating his accomplishments, because that's what kings did, and no one else got in trouble for it. But because in doing so, or in the way he did it, he refused to acknowledge the one who had given him all of this greatness. And in that, it's hard not to notice the parallels with the other great tower built on the plain of Babylon 
And that's the point. Nebuchadnezzar had just... I mean, we don't know how much time has elapsed, but it doesn't seem like it's that long of a time. But Nebuchadnezzar, in the previous chapter, just had a dream showing his greatness. Remember the great statue and he was the golden head? But the dream also made it clear to him that all of this greatness was given to him by the God of Israel. So here he knows this. The God who gave him all of this power gives him a dream to to make that clear to him. And even it takes the, 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 the servants of that God to come and reveal his dream and explain it to him. And what does he do in response? He doesn't fall down and worship the Lord and say, thank you for giving me all this. Like the men who built the Tower of Babel all those centuries before. Nebuchadnezzar goes and he erects a mighty golden monument as a testament to all that he has done. I mean, forget this God. This is all about Nebuchadnezzar. And that's where he gets himself into trouble. And that takes us to the question, well, what exactly is the image I mean, in, this, in the kid's storybook, it shows an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's sort of a duplication of what he saw in his dream, except it's all covered in gold. It doesn't seem likely that it was an image of a god, like an idol, because like other ancient Near Easterners, Babylonians, when they made idols, they put them inside temples, not out in the open. I won't get into that, but making a house for an idol was how idols worked. So it doesn't seem like this is an idol or an image of a god. And it's probably not an image of the king. Because Assyrians and Babylonians did make images of their their kings. But what we know of it is they would put those images, they were much smaller, but they would put those images in the temples before the idol of the god as a way of praying or asking their gods for prosperity or well-being. So I think the best answer is that this image is it's what we call a, a stella or sometimes a steel. It's basically a big upright slab or column. And Babylonians, Babylonians erected these sorts of things all the time to commemorate great events for victories in battle or, or even great kings. A stella might be erected to honor a king, and then people would actually come and they would bring offerings to it. And it was kind of a way for the king to to obliquely receive the honor due to the gods without the blasphemy of claiming that godhood for himself. And these sorts of ceremonies would take place in the provinces as a way for the people, especially the conquered peoples, to show their loyalty to the king and to Babylon. And I think that fits pretty perfectly with our story here. And it explains why the storyteller mocks Nebuchadnezzar for what he's done. Nebuchadnezzar knows that he cannot claim divinity for himself. He knows that it is the God of Israel who has given him all of this greatness, But he sort of found a loophole, a way that he can demand the loyalty of all of his subjects and he can get them to come and bow down to him almost like he's a god without actually claiming to be God. And brothers and sisters, that's a really dumb thing to do. Really, really dumb thing to do. So picking up at verse 2. 
Notice all the people who come to the dedication of the image. And notice how the lists of all the dignitaries and all the instruments, everything in here, it's full of all these lists and things, and they're repeated over and over throughout the story. Everything is excessive to the, to the point of absurdity. So continuing, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I mean, even they don't use pronouns very often. That's not he, not Nebuchadnezzar did this and then he summoned all these people to worship the image he set up. You've got to reiterate again, it was the king. It was the king. So it's all about him. Then, oh, here we go again, the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image, image that Nebuchadnezzar, or King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There's no question who set this up, right? It didn't just happen. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's doing. And then he says, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, notice all that repetition that stresses Nebuchadnezzar did this. It stresses how important the crowd and the international people and the dignitaries are. And the list of instruments repeated over and over, stressing all the pomp and the circumstance. And and even the description of the punishment for those who refuse to honor the image, even that's excessive. If you don't bow down, it's not not just that you'll be thrown into a furnace. I mean, like that's not bad enough. You'll die. But no... Over and over, it's described redundantly as the burning and fiery furnace. I actually like the translation written by the Old Testament scholar John Golding Gay. It's, it's not quite literal, but he says it's over and over. It's the red-hot burning fiery furnace. You get some alliteration going and everything. And to all appearances, everything goes well. Everybody bows down to the statue when they hear all the instruments and all of that. But in the back of our minds, we're thinking, all those dignitaries are there. What about Daniel and his three friends? Because they're probably there too. Or at least the three friends. We know Daniel's in the court. These guys are out in the province. So what are they going to do when this happens? Are they going to bow down to honor this image? Are they going to go along with Nebuchadnezzar as he robs their God of his glory? I mean, they're the ones who revealed that, they with Daniel revealed that that dream to the king. They know what's going on. They know what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Are they going to go along with it? So continuing at verse 8, it says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree 
that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, every man shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay you no attention. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So it's payback time. Remember that at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had elevated Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over all the other wise men and put them over all the affairs of the province of Babylon? Now, the really dumb thing here is that they and Daniel had saved the lives of all of these wise men. Remember, when they couldn't reveal the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was going to have them all executed, torn limb from limb. They saved these men's lives. But then, because they were elevated to a position over all of them, that apparently doesn't count for anything anymore. These foreign upstarts have usurped their positions, and and, and now they're just mad. And apparently, Nebuchadnezzar, from wherever his vantage point was, he could see the crowd, he could see everybody bowing down, and he was all happy about it, everybody was giving him honor. What he couldn't see were the individuals in the crowd. But these men were down there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they, they saw them refusing to bow down. So they take full advantage of this opportunity to get rid of them. They report them to the king, knowing that their rivals will end up in the burning, fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar responds as we might expect. I mean, you might expect him to say, oh, well, you know, I'll give those guys a pass after everything they've done. And he might, you, know, you might think he would even rebuke these guys and say, you know, if you refuse to bow down, I'd throw you in the furnace. But those guys, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give them a pass because of who they are, because it's their God who's put me where I am. But he doesn't do that. The text goes on and says, Nebuchadnezzar, the Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought Forget who they are, forget everything they've done, forget that he's just in the previous chapter honored the God that they serve. He's furious. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? I mean, did he really need to ask? What did he expect? But he says, now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and pipe and lyre and trigon and harp and bagpipe and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. And then he says, and who is the God who will deliver you from out of my hand? Again, never mind that it was their God who revealed his dream to Daniel when none of his other wise men could. Never mind that in response to what their God had done, he'd elevated these men over all the other wise men. Everybody, without exception, needs to honor his greatness because he's Nebuchadnezzar the Great. 
And it's so important that this happened. I mean, maybe this is him in his mind thinking he's cutting them some slack. They didn't bow down the first time, but he'll give them a second chance. But this is so important to him that he's willing to run through the entire ceremony all over again for their benefit. And he makes sure they know the consequences. Refuse to bow down, and it's the burning, fiery furnace for you. And he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Brothers and sisters, Nebuchadnezzar has just reached peak stupid. Never say anything like that. Because what he's doing, he's throwing down the gauntlet. And he's challenging the God of Israel. He challenges the God of whom the psalmist writes. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As Nebuchadnezzar makes this challenge, you can just sort of imagine the Lord in heaven raising an eyebrow chuckling a bit to himself. Really? Really, Nebuchadnezzar? Really, you want to go here? Now, in contrast, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do know the Lord, of, the, Lord the God of Psalm 2. They know the God who once delivered their ancestors from the hand of Pharaoh. They know the words of Moses who had said to Israel, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. They know to whom they belong. They trusted that the same God who had delivered Israel from the iron furnace of Egypt was with them there on the plain of Babylon as this mad, stupid, power-crazy king threatens them with his own furnace. They know the God of their ancestors. And so they're not afraid. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, And said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's, there's some debate about their statement to the king and whether, how, how it should be translated. Some translated as if the men were, were absolutely certain without a doubt that the Lord would deliver them. And others, like the English Standard Version that I'm working from, they translate the statement with a bit of qualification. Um, you know, if he doesn't, we're still good. We're not going to change our minds. Uh, my Aramaic isn't good enough for me to have a dogmatic opinion on it. So I'm happy to go with the the ESV. But however it's translated, all of the emphasis is on their faith. They trust the Lord. He will deliver them. Or maybe he won't. 
But either way, they know that the God of Israel is wise, that he is good, and that he is faithful. And most importantly, they know that he holds them in his hand. Whatever happens, he holds them in his hand. They know his history with their own people. And I think he delivered them from the iron furnace of Egypt. He will deliver us from Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. But even if he doesn't, our God has still got us. I think it's important to note this because this is where we see the Lord had a reason in raising up this pagan king and allowing him to take the people of Judah into exile. The Lord's people for hundreds and hundreds of years had been fickle and unfaithful. They'd worshipped pagan gods at altars. They'd, They'd even gone so far as to set up in the Lord's temple. Like here's the Lord's altar over here and next to it they put an altar to Baal. And over there, they put an altar to Asherah. They had ignored the law the Lord had given them. The rulers of the nation trusted in horses and chariots and and pagan kings rather than the Lord. They oppressed the poor and took advantage of widows and orphans. And because of all that, the nations looked at Israel and they mocked her. And more importantly, they mocked her God. But here in exile, these men represent the Lord's people as they experience the Lord's discipline and turn back to him. This is what the people of Israel were supposed to be all along. They refused to live it in their own land and in times of prosperity. So the Lord took everything away. And here they're finally being that light in the darkness in the midst of a pagan land and as they stand before a pagan king. Finally here, they commit to being light in the darkness, even though they may die for it. I think the retelling of this story in those days of apostasy and terror under Antiochus Epiphanes, that was meant to exhort the people of Judah to something very similar. Because people were asking, why is this happening to us? Where is the Lord in these evil days? Why are our fellow Jews apostatizing and and going after Greek gods under the pressure? What should we do? Should we bow to this altar of Zeus that the king is putting up in our temple? And so the storyteller holds up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and reminds the people of his own day that this is how the Lord works. The Lord is present with his people in both blessing and cursing. And one way or another, the nations will glorify him because of Israel. He's saying, hear the Lord's rebuke, heed his discipline and repent, and be strong in faith and stand firm for the Lord, the God of Israel, even in the face of death. Brothers and sisters, I think that's the same lesson for us. We need to ask. Does the world look at the church today? Has it been looking at the church for the last several centuries, perhaps, and instead of finding reason to give glory to God and to submit to Jesus and the gospel, is it mocking us? And is the world mocking us because that's sometimes just what the world does because it hates God? Or have we sometimes or all too often given the world a reason to mock God? the church, and to mock God.
that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks with tunics, with their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell bound into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, you know, such insolence. How dare they refuse to honor me? So off to the furnace they go. We can only, we, we have to speculate about the specifics of the furnace. I don't think that's all that important, but it, you know, it was probably close by. Probably it was used to fire the bricks for the image or to smelt the gold that they had, had covered it with. We can't say much about its design other than it was probably a big hole in the ground lined with bricks and covered with some kind of roof or dome. We can imagine the men who manned the furnace lighting the fires and, and pumping like they'd never pumped before at the bellows because, of course, you don't want to upset the king. He wants it hot. And so they pump at the bellows and get this thing as hot as they possibly can. Again, the storyteller uses crazy over-the-top language to to describe the anger of this crazy and over-the-top king. Because depending on what they were firing in the furnace or what it was used for, the normal temperature would have been, I mean, it was hot, like 900 to 1100 degrees Celsius. But with their technology that they had in Babylon, they might have been able to get a furnace up to 1500 degrees, which is far and away from anything like seven times as hot as it would normally be. But the storyteller's point is to emphasize the king's rage at these men. It's completely over the top. They chose to honor their God over him. So the king's guards throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, and it's so hot that those guards themselves are burned and end up dying in the process. So you think, surely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown down into this furnace. They're dead too. But then, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This Nebuchadnezzar probably thought the heat was playing tricks on him. I mean, imagine him getting up as close as possible as he can to the furnace without getting himself burned like those men of his that died. You can imagine him feeling the heat on his face and his beard starts to singe as he's looking inside. And sure enough, the three men were still alive. And, and, and not alive in the sense that, like, yeah, they're alive, but they're in the process of horrible, horrible death. It's like there's nothing wrong. They're up and they're walking around inside the furnace. In the apocryphal version of Daniel, they're even singing a song. And there's a fourth person with them. 
And there's something divine about that fourth person that causes a king to describe him as like a son of the gods. All throughout history, people have speculated about what that meant. Some people see the pre-incarnate Jesus here, somehow sort of, I don't know how that works, but somehow like pre-incarnately pre-incarnate or something. I'm not quite sure again how that works. It's possible, I guess. But those sorts of speculations, I think, go beyond the scope of the story. Son of the gods was a common expression for divinity in the ancient Near East, and I think that's what's important here. Whether it was an angel, or whether it was Jesus, or whether it was God in some other manifestation, the point is that God was with these men, and not only with them, but preserving them from harm. And even this pagan king, full of himself, could somehow recognize that it was God who was with the men. So then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Talk about a change of heart here, but sometimes this is what it takes. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree... I mean, if you could make a 180-degree turn and then like make a 180-degree turn from that and still be going the other direction. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. Remember, that's what he was going to do to his wise man, his wise men who couldn't interpret his dream. He says, For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then finally, the note that the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I'm not sure what that means. They were already at the top, apparently, but you know, he honors them again. When you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar, here is a king who knew a host of gods, but he had never seen anything like this before. Seeing these men not only alive, but completely untouched by the fire, had to have turned everything upside down for him. And not only him, but all those satraps and prefects and governors and royal counselors and everybody else who was gathered there to watch the execution. Everything in their world was suddenly backwards. The men who had been loyal to the king, who had obeyed his command to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they died an utterly pointless death for the sake of their loyalty to the king. But then these young men who'd stood up to the king, even as he threatened them with death, these young men loyal to their God, they live. It's a powerful reminder that the Lord is in control and that we give our loyalty to kings at our own peril. But even more, this whole scene 
was a manifestation of God's glory. This is what happens when the Lord's people do what they're supposed to do. When they live as they're supposed to live. When they stand firm in faith, they cause kings like Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge that the Lord is the Most High God. I mean, again, notice that dramatic reversal. Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the furnace because they refused to honor him. And now, after their deliverance in the furnace, now he's honoring them and he's glorifying their God for exactly the same reason. Because they refused to acknowledge him. God acts and it turns everything around, turns everything upside down for these pagans. It's ironic. We're gonna, you're going to die because you refuse to honor me. And then when they're rescued. Okay, because you refuse to honor me, your God is great. I think sometimes we need to think on that. When we're tempted to give God's glory to someone else or something else. When we give his glory to our idols, or we're tempted to. Think on that. Brothers and sisters, this ought to encourage us to stand firm in our faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. It's a reminder that the Lord is in control, even as everything around us changes, even as the church may seem to be in decline, going into exile, even as we in the gospel fall out of favor, even as we are despised for loving Jesus and proclaiming the good news that he has died and risen. I mean, I I don't think any of us here in Canada are in in danger of being put to death or anything, but we may lose our privileges and rights as the world mocks our faith. Is it like Nebuchadnezzar claims God's glory for, for themselves and tries to stamp out anything that might remind them of the truth? And Christians increasingly face situations in work or school or government in which the powers that be insist we bow to their demands that are often at odds with the gospel, or even with the very idea of truth. Postmodernism is increasingly spiraling into this cynical absurdity. And they get angry at anybody who won't go along with them. So on the one hand, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remind us that sometimes the wise thing to do is simply to be obedient to the Lord and keep your head down. You notice, they didn't go looking for trouble. They didn't announce their stand to anyone or to the king in advance. They didn't hold a protest. They just simply and quietly refused to ascribe to this earthly king what they knew rightly belonged to the Lord. Sometimes godly wisdom will dictate a louder protest. But I think what we see here with these three men is sort of the default approach we should have to these difficult situations. We don't need to go searching for martyrdom or searching for persecution, but sometimes persecution and martyrdom will find us. And if and when that happens, brothers and sisters, never forget that God is sovereign, that he is always in control, that he is always with us and holds us in his hand. And never forget that we trust the Lord because he has given us hope. It's hard to say what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego expected after their death. Because they lived in a time before the Jews had really developed a full doctrine of the resurrection. 
But at the least, they trusted that some way, somehow, the Lord would be with them in death. They knew the Lord was good. They knew the Lord was great. They knew the Lord was faithful, and they knew his promises to care for and to be with his people. So even if they didn't have a concept of resurrection after death, they could still say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. He will judge. He will vindicate. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. That was all they really needed to be faithful. But in light of that, consider all that you and I have. The cross stands before us as a reminder of the resurrection of Jesus. He died for us. He rose for us. And he has promised that one day he will raise us from death to the life of God's new creation, to a life lived in his presence. And he's even given us an earnest on that life and the gift of his, of his own spirit. Brothers and sisters, this God who delivered Israel from the iron furnace of Egypt, this God who delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the burning, fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, this God has since manifested himself in Jesus. He has entered the furnace himself. He has taken its punishment and died, and he has done so for our sake, so that we can live, so that we can one day live forever with him. He has come into the furnace with us. As St. Paul wrote to the Colossians, this Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, not some pillar on the plain of Babylon. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and Him we know in our own flesh, this great God of deliverance. Because of Him, we have every reason to stand firm in faith and to glorify Him. And in Him we have hope that one day, because of the faithful witness of his people, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that this Jesus is Lord. One day, the entire world will come like Nebuchadnezzar to the God of Israel and to the Lord Jesus and confess that he is Lord. Let's pray. O Lord God, you know that we cannot put our trust in anything that we do. Mercifully defend us by your power, we pray, against every adversity. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.